0: All right. Good morning, everyone. The hymn is TLH 470. It looks like this. It's on the right hand side. Rise again, ye lion hearted. TLH 470. Not in the. Yeah.
1: Rise again, ye lion-hearted, saints of early Christendom. Whither is your strength departed? Whither gone your martyrdom? Lo, love's light is on them glory's flame upon them and their will to die doth quell in the lord and prince of hell these the men by fear unshaken facing danger dauntlessly These no witching lust hath taken, lust that lures to vanity, mid the roar and rattle of tumultuous battle. In desire they soar above All that earth would have them love. Great of heart they know no turning, Honor gold they laugh to scorn, Quenched his eyes within them burning, By no earthly passion torn, Mid the lion's roaring, songs of praise outpouring, joyously they take their stand on the arena's bloody sand. Would to God that I might even as the martyred saints of old with the helping hand of heaven steadfast and in battle bold O my God I pray thee In the combat stay me, grant that I may ever be loyal, staunch, and true to Thee. Amen. Let us pray.
0: Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray, O Lord, so rule and govern our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit, that ever mindful of the end of all things and the day of your just judgment, we may be stirred up to holiness of living here and dwell with you forever hereafter, through Jesus Christ your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week is Jeremiah thirty-three 16. Let's speak this together. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. In those days, which days? What are those days? In a in a sense.
1: A. Is that the uh, time where uh, whoever came in and, and destroyed uh, tribes in, in the tribes and Judah was the weeks
0: In a sense, yes. So uh, contextually, remember that Jeremiah. His nickname is the weeping prophet. Uh, Jeremiah is the prophet who wrote the book of Lamentations. He wrote during the exile, uh, which is one reason why he weeps. But what this is referring to is really what we would say the day of the Lord. And what is the day of the Lord? (laughs) Well, yes, it is the Lord's day, the Sabbath day, but it is not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a, a specific thing. And it should make you think of what? In Genesis, one of the accounts, Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, or the binding of Isaac, because Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. The day of the Lord is the salvation of uh, of man in Christ. That is the day of the Lord. So it isn't about the fact that the day of the Lord is just a period of time. The day of the Lord is an event that is ongoing. So the day of the Lord is... uh, salvation in Christ, when Christ comes and is victorious. And then Christ's victory continues, so we can say that Christ is victorious instead of Christ was victorious. Both are grammatically correct. Christ was victorious, he won the battle. But him winning the battle isn't something that happens just once in history and then, well, it's done. Christ is victorious because his victory is ongoing. It is, uh, it, it persists. So in those days, the days of the Lord, Judah will be saved. And what is Judah?
1: Well, literally, it's one of the tribes.
0: Okay, yeah, one of the tribes. It's one of the sons of... Okay.
1: The Lion of Judah.
0: Yes. Judah, Judah is also a region. Judah or Judea, That's the same region. And it is the southern part of the Roman province of Palestine. So if you think of the Roman province of Palestine, here it is. This is r- so uh, it's split. In the north is Israel, and in the south is Judea or Judah. And what is in Judah? Right about there. Jerusalem, so Judah and Jerusalem right here refer to what? What's the thing, what's the difference between Israel and Judah, the north and the south? One really, 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 really big difference is one of them is faithful to the Lord and the other one is not. The north is not faithful. The south is. So Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell safely. These are the faithful people of the Lord. And what we can say is that Judah and Jerusalem refers to the church.
1: It seems like uh, Benjamin's tribe enters in there a little bit. Is it in a similar territory as Judah? Yes.
0: It's not just... It's not just Judah's land, but there is a minority in what is the region of Judah that is faithful, and very few of the tribes uh, remain faithful. And of course, Judah has some bad kings, just like Israel does. But the but Judah, the southern kingdom, being faithful is a uh, f- is a theme throughout Scripture. The north being unfaithful, the south being faithful. In fact, that's one reason why uh, movement happens the way that it does in the sanctuary. One reason why candles are lit in the way that they are because it goes from south to north. Uh, that the light of Israel comes from the south and moves into the north. There's, there's lots of reasons why things happen the way they do. And, and there used to be a time when the Old Testament and the Epistle were read from a different side of the altar, and then you would move across to the other side to preach the gospel, and it was that same movement from south to north. So there's a liturgical thing there too. Judah will be saved, Jerusalem will dwell safely, and this is the name by which she will be called. This might strike you as different than what you thought it would say, because if you remember the Advent versicles for Matins, it goes like this. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. But here the translation is, this is the name by which she will be called. So who is the she? Obviously it's not referring to Jesus. Who is she? The bride, the bride and who, what, yeah, the church. Which means that she is referring back up to here, to Judah and to Jerusalem, which is for us the church which means that it isn't so much that Jesus' name is going to be called the Lord is our righteousness, but that the church is going to be called the Lord is our righteousness. And that's really important because it's stating something that is a state of being for you who are in the church, for the church herself, the state of being is that our righteousness is not good. The Lord is our righteousness. We are victorious in the Lord. It also tells you what your relationship is with the Lord, that he will be the one who is your righteousness. It also tells you what he has done for you. Why is it that you will dwell safely and will be saved? Because the Lord is your righteousness. That's, this is one of many reasons why the church has historically taken the position that uh, those, there is no salvation for those who are outside of the church, just like there is no salvation for the people that are outside of the ark. Uh, and we, that means a lot more than what it seems like on the surface, but that's the general position. If you're outside of the church, just like being outside of the ark, because the Lord is not your righteousness, but in here, the Lord is our righteousness. All right, let's speak this again. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Good. What is the second article of the Creed? And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Why did Jesus Christ your Lord redeem you, a lost and condemned person? That I may be his own, can live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. Okay, firstly, why is it that the Lord redeems you? It's right there in the very first line. Why is it that the Lord redeems you? That we may be his own. Yes, that you may be his own, which implies what? It, it implies two things, actually. One thing about you and one thing about God. What's the thing about you that it implies? We are You are now. But you weren't. You weren't. There was a time when you did not belong to Jesus. You were not his own. And that's important. Uh, There was a time when you were not. Like Peter uh, in his epistle writes, uh, you you who were not a people are now a people. You were nobody. You did not belong to the Lord, but now you do, and now you are made great. Uh, So that's Again, tying in with the temptation of Jesus, when Satan says, oh, all of this, all the kingdoms of the world, all these, I'll just give to you. So many people say, well, what a dumb temptation. Jesus is the Lord of all. He already owns them. That's a silly temptation. None of the temptations of Satan are ever silly. He's not an idiot. He's a whole heck of a lot smarter than you are. I'll tell you that. He's not smarter than Jesus, but he's definitely smarter than you. The temptation is valid, it is a true temptation, and is it a difficult one for Jesus to resist because Satan does own the kingdoms of the world. So you have to be bought back, redeemed, repurchased back from one who owns you. So he does it that you may be his own, which then also implies what about him? Why would he go out to make you his own. He because he loves you. Because he wants you to be his own. He's not content creating you and then setting you in creation and saying, well, whatever you want to do, you, want you do. Uh, and you, just, you guys just have fun there. It's not like he creates entertainment for himself by bringing into existence all of this stuff and then using it as some kind of you know ESPN network where he can watch and see oh what's gonna happen now who's gonna start the war oh who's gonna win the war or some kind of museum exhibit or like a zoo well okay what are the people oh well would you look at that he's intimately involved he wants you to be his own and that means that even if he has to go all the way down into your flesh and die in it with your sins on his back then he will so that he can make sure that you are his own. Man is created for communion with God, and this is how he brings it back. Why? He wants you to live under him in his kingdom. He wants his kids to come home, and he's going to go out and get you and bring you home. There's a pastor that I know about who is in the inner city, and uh, inner city uh, um, Baltimore, and some of, his catech- some of his catechumens started getting involved in the gang activity. So somehow he, fig- he found out where and when the gangs had their meetings. And he put on his cassock. And this guy is chalk-white Scandinavian. And he crashed through the doors of that gang meeting. And he grabbed his catechumens by the ears and then looked at all the rest of those kids and said, you leave my kids alone. And then he pulled them out. That's what Christ wants to do for you. He wants to come and find you. He wants to make sure that you belong to him and not to any other gang. And he wants to bring you home. And he wants you to serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Now, serve him does not mean that Christ wants to bring you uh, to his kingdom so that he can have a bunch of servants. In fact, you kind of already serve him now, don't you? How do you serve Christ now? This morning. By serving others. Okay, by serving others. But what about this morning? What is it this morning that you're doing? Okay, but well, all right, the issue, though, is that the liturgy isn't so much about us as it is about the Lord, and primarily, of course, it's the Lord who works today, but there is a work of service that you perform within the liturgy and on the Sabbath. Think of it as response to all of the, a response to the Gottesdienst, a response to the Lord who is serving you, and your response is What? When you have a birthday party and someone puts on a big show for you and builds you a big cake and gives you a bunch of gifts, what is your response, your work? Yeah, you give thanks. Thanks and praise is the work of the Christian for Christ. But the work of serving in that capacity is couched under the umbrella of the Lord still working for you. So when we confess in the creed and in this explanation that uh, Christ wants us to serve him, it isn't about little house servants who are going to clean and dust the kingdom of heaven or, and fix meals. It's about receiving from him and then offering an outpouring of thanks and praise for all of eternity. That's what he wants because that is the definition of communion with God. That you may be his own. And then what does it mean that you are his own? That you offer him thanks and praise while you receive all the good that he has right in, uh, before his very face. That's what it all means. Just as he is risen from the dead, which means that these traits of righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, and him rising from the dead are traits that you possess too, being his own, but they are not your traits, they are ascribed traits. Traits that are given to you that are yours to say these are my traits, but they did not originate with you. They were given. Uh, just as Christ is risen from the dead lives and reigns to all eternity you also will be risen from the dead and you will live for all eternity this is most certainly true questions okay to Sunday school well I tell you what Liturgically, we're starting to get into one of my favorite times of the year, which is the end times and into Advent. This seamless transition is one of my favorite times. And uh, there's a lot to talk about, and we're going to pick up sort of where we left off here in our other study. but. Here's the real question that I want to begin with. And this all ties together, actually. The end times are a great time to be talking about this. Why is it that you die? Because we're
1: sinners.
0: Okay, because you're sinners. But what does that mean? Uh. See, I'm going to press you. Because it's really, easy, it's really easy for us to say, well, we're sinners... We're sinners, we die because of sin, but what does it mean? What does it mean that you are a sinner, and what does it mean, what is sin, what does it mean that we say something is sin, what does it mean that you are a sinner, why do you, why do you die because of sin? What does all of this mean?
1: Because I was conceived in sin.
0: You were conceived in sin, but what does that mean? Separated from God. Okay, sin is separation from God. Yes. Why? Why does sin separate you from God?
1: It originated back
0: Adam and yes. That's true. But why does it separate you? Why are there no sinners in heaven?
1: God is perfect. Okay. He was born into sin. Okay. We need Jesus Christ who <clears throat> died, on the cross to take away our sins. Yes. Just tell us the answer.
0: No. Uh, So the reason that I'm asking you all of these questions and pushing you is because, you know, this is one of, of course, one of my hobby horses is, I don't like buzzwords. I I don't, and there's always the temptation for that. Like the example I used a few weeks ago was justification. I said, what is justification? And then there were a smattering of answers, but it was relatively silent because you know about justification, and you know what justification isn't, but if somebody says, what is it? Well, then you have to say, oh, well, well, it's by faith. Okay, that's a characteristic of justification, but that's not what justification is. And then you realize, I don't really know what the thing is. I know the word for it, and I know things about it, but I don't know what it is and why it is, and I want to push you on all of these things because it's never enough for me that you know the word. You have to know the thing itself. You can know tons of words, and you can use them, uh, and it doesn't do you any good unless you actually know. So, sin itself is characterized by a separation from God, and it causes a separation from God. But the reason why sin separates you from God is because sin is unholy. God is holy. God cannot be in the presence of sin, even if he wants to. Why? Because what happens to sin when it's in the presence of righteousness It's blasted, it's obliterated. The Lord is a fire. And there's a reason why the unfaithful are often referred to as chaff. Because what happens to the chaff? Okay, it blows away, but, which is true, it blows away and is no longer there. But specifically, think of John the Baptist talking about the winnowing fork is in his hand and what is going to happen to the chaff? I don't want a whole bunch of chaff laying around in my threshing room floor. How? It's going to be burned. Yeah, and, and here is the... Fire
1: unquenchable.
0: Yeah, unquenchable fire, which is, by the way, uh, <laughs> there's a professor at the seminary who likes to turn Greek into English words. So, like, the, uh, the guards at the tomb of Jesus, your English translation said they quaked but that isn't what the Greek says. It said that they earthquaked. Uh, they seismographed. So that's, that's one of the things he'll say, was they seismographed, which is silly, but you get the sense of what it really talks about. Well, um, rats, I, for, I forgot where I was going. What was, what was your it gets, answer?
1: It gets worse.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I, have, I don't have a lot to look forward to. Fire unquenchable. Oh right, the fire unquenchable, which is the asbestos fire. The asbestos fire, it gets hot and it doesn't stop. The asbestos keeps burning. That's that's the word. Us, the unquenchable fire is asbestos in the Greek. So. Uh, this is this is the description of the fire. Not only is it just, well, here is the furnace and he, I got to clean up all this chaff now and then I don't what am I going to do with it? Well, it's garbage. I'm going to burn it. But this is asbestos fire in that furnace. It's it's unquenchable fire. Once the chaff goes in, there's nothing that's going to help it. And that's that's what happens. The Lord is a fire. The Lord's righteousness is a flame. And if you are chaff, you don't have to get very close to that fire before the tongues start licking out. And you know what happens with a fire. I mean, look at something like the California wildfires out there on the West Coast. All it takes is one dumb hiker doing a dumb thing in, a, in an area where he shouldn't be. And all of a sudden, the whole state's on fire. Because once the fire starts going, anything in its way that is consumable will be consumed. And this is the picture that we have of God in, as it pertains to his relationship to sin and then you know, seasonally as it pertains to his coming again. Unquenchable fire. He consumes and it's sort of like he can't even help it. He's just righteous and you're not. And that's what happens. That's why the priests... Would fall down on their faces. That's why Moses falls down on his face at the burning bush. That's why they say things like, Oh, I am a, I am a man of unclean lips. Oh, woe is me, the prophet Isaiah says. I'm, I'm here in the middle of the heavenly courts. And he doesn't rejoice. He is afraid because he doesn't want to be caught in the asbestos fire because he knows who he is and he knows what he is. And that's sin. Sin is an impurity. It is a disease. It is an infection. It is a cancer. That is why it brings death. And why is it then that you are conceived and born in sin? Why is it that we believe in this idea of original sin? That even before you can think or do anything, you are already sinful. How far back does it go? <laughs> to Adam and Eve. But specifically to choose one of those two. Yeah. Oh dear, if you said Eve, boy, you're a misogynist. <laughs> Sexist against women. You know, you, so we laugh at that because we are reasonable people. And I said that as a joke, because I know that you are reasonable people. But, there are many unreasonable people. And when I was in college, of course, I have a minor in classics, like classical mythology and Greco-Roman culture and history. And I took a class, and one of the classes in in our whole assignment for one week was that we were supposed to compare fall narratives. And the big one that we looked at was Pandora's box. You know about Pandora? She's a punishment because uh, Perseus did a bet it's Perseus, right? Pandora's given to Perseus. No, Prometheus, excuse me, Prome- Prometheus, because he stole, he stole the fire. so he, got his, he gets his liver eaten out every day by a vulture, and then there was something else about Pandora that Pandora uh, Pandora is this beautiful woman, but she's dumb. Dumb as rocks. I said, well, this is what a Here, because you've been so bad, I'm going to give you woman. And she's dumb. And she can't do anything. And she's not good for anything. And I'm going to give her this box. And if she opens this box, all, quite literally, all hell is going to break loose on Earth. And you know what? I know she's going to open the box because she's so stupid. And then guess what she does? She opens the box because she's so dumb. So we had to compare that with Genesis 3. And everyone was saying, yeah, Christians aren't original because they put the fault of everything bad in humanity on the woman's shoulders. Woman is the cause of all evil, which is true if you are in the ancient Mediterranean culture. Women are sort of, you know, second class. Women are are not the the people who are great. But it isn't true in terms of the the biblical account of the fall. Because who's the one who's supposed to know better? Adam. If only Eve sinned, it could be forgiven in a sense. But Adam is the one. Who is is the one who is created as man? Adam. Who is the one who is husband? Adam. Adam. What is the husband's job? Responsibility. He has responsibility over his wife. He has the responsibility to manage his household. He's supposed to love his wife and to care for her and to protect her. This is, by the way, why I am also against things personally like a draft for our women. Because we shouldn't have our women fighting our battles when our job is to protect them. But, all of that aside... Um, it it is the husband's job to look after his wife, to care for her. And Adam is the first pastor. Why? Because he is the first one who has the responsibility of preaching and upholding the word of the Lord. That's not Eve's job. That's Adam's job. So when... Satan goes against God's word or questions God's word or attempts to sow doubt about God's word, who, where does the buck stop? Adam. And, what make, and all that you need to know about that whole fall, if it didn't include this phrase, you could say that it was all Eve's fault. Oh, that darn woman, so dumb, worthless. Women are so much trouble. But it includes this phrase. And then she took some, and she ate, and she gave of the fruit to her husband, who was there with her. Which means that as a false prophet is there beguiling his wife, he didn't even say a word. And the ultimate sin of Adam and Eve is what? I've said it before, so this is just a sort of a memory test. Somebody just said it, and I, and I want you to say it loudly. Pride. Oh, that's why you said it quietly, because it, it was my wife. <laughs> she's just, she's a plant, so. Uh, yeah, it's Pride. You say, well, they took and they ate of the fruit. God said that they weren't supposed to eat of the fruit, and then they took and they ate of it. Is that a sin that they took and ate of the fruit? Yes, yes it is. They weren't supposed to do that. But here's the 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 bigger issue: is this, what has to happen first before they take of the fruit and eat it? Yes, they have to believe that. <clears throat> Excuse me. They have to believe that they know better. So it isn't about, don't take it, oh you took it, well doggone it. It's about fearing, loving, and trusting in God. And when God says, you're not ready to eat of this, just pay attention to my word. And then they say, well, but it looks good to me, which is a paraphrase of what it says, Because the arguments all first begin with, well, God didn't really say that. Yes, he did. God's word said this. God told us this. We heard his word, and this is what it said. And it changes from that to, and when they saw with their eyes that the fruit was good to eat, and there it is. It has become not, not objective anymore according to the Word of God, but subjective according to whatever I think, and that is pride. When you seek not to replace God, but to make yourself as God.
1: Well, that was the first sin, then rather than actually eating the apple. It
0: is, because even, even like this, if I want to pick up my water bottle and take a drink of water, what is the first process in that act? Thinking about it, making up my mind that I'm going to do it, and having my brain be the thing that says, okay, we're committed to this, now let's go, muscles. So the taking of the bottle and the drinking of the water is actually the very last thing that happens. Because the first thing is that I have decided that this is what I'm going to do, and I have committed to the act. Yes. Correct. What you, think, what you think is the thing that you do even if all you ever do is think it your thought is an action and your thought is a sin when you look at a woman with lust uh, you have already committed adultery with her because you're, you, have, you have in your head gone yeah, alright you know, walking down the sidewalk and doing one of these <laughs> well, there it is there it is. Yes, Larry.
1: So, the question is, why is the tree there?
0: That's a great question. Uh the,
1: it's a decision between God and, them and them.
0: No, the Lord created it. The, the Lord put it there in the garden. The there's, there's two trees. One is the tree of life, and one is the tree of knowledge. And... Uh, It all comes down to what the Lord says. Well, firstly, it comes down to the fact that the Lord created the garden and he put those trees in there. So obviously there's a reason for it. And we've got some Lutherans that will say, he did it as a test, which is, I mean, it sounds like such a Lutheran thing to say, doesn't it?
1: The Lord put those trees there to test man to see if he would do what the Lord told him to do. And then he didn't. And you say,
0: that's sort of a weird god though isn't it how am i supposed to fear love and trust in a god who does things like that like it putting spikes on the stairs and saying now let's see how many stairs you can climb without stepping on one of those spikes oh well you lost i mean good grief is that a loving god so you have to look at god and by the way this is you know like how you try really hard not to be your parents And then you try so hard not to be your parents that you become your parents, which, uh, you know, my parents listen to this, but they they already know this, but I have done, there's this one thing in particular, I'll tell you this story, one thing in particular. Um, My mother is extraordinarily obsessive compulsive about time. And I am too, because I am my mother. I have a daughter who is my penance, well, I was penance for someone else. And everything is very punctual. If you're not half an hour early, boy, you're already late. You know, we would leave so early to get places that sometimes we'd have to drive around the block for a while until it was acceptable to be there and, and, and go in. And that's just the way it was. And that's the way I think too, like, all right, we've got to make sure that, that we're going. Let's, figure out how long it's going to take for us to get from point A to point B and then add about 45 minutes because you never know what's going to happen and we, you can always get there early. There's never too early. And meanwhile, you know, my wife says, 30 minutes is way too early to arrive at the doctor for your appointment. But my mother would do this thing where she would get so concerned about us getting up to the wire of when she thought we needed to leave, particularly on Sunday mornings that she would just leave the house. She'd put on her clothes, she'd get her purse, or put on her coat, get her purse, and go out in the car, start the car, and then she would just sit in the car with it running, waiting for everybody else to get into the car so that we could leave. And I said, I will never do that. Because it always made me angry. And my dad was always like, Oh, you know, I'm going as
1: fast as I can, and
0: then I did it. <laughs> my wife. My wife was moving slowly, bless her dear heart. And I wanted to be moving faster. And I was concerned about, hey, it's this time, we need to leave. And I did it. And I didn't even think about it. And I got in the car and I started it up and I pulled it out of the driveway. And I turned it around and got it in in launch mode. And then I just sat there (laughs) and waited. And then it was about 30 minutes later, we were already on the road. And that's when it hit me, I said. I just did a Laura Ferguson! The one thing I tried so hard never to do is the thing that I did. And the reason that I, that I tell you that is because Lutherans do that. All Christians do it, really, because you have these groups of Christians that you really don't like. And for us, who is it? Who do we hate? Okay, who do we stereotypically hate? All right, it's not, it's not a trick question. The Catholics. The Catholics, but we hate somebody even more than the Catholics. Who do we hate more than the Catholics?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> OK. You, Baptists, sure, but Baptists fall under what broader category? Calvinists. Calvinists. We hate Calvinists. Boy, do we hate Calvinists? Stereotypically, of course. Uh, Because if you've learned anything from me, it's that you really shouldn't be hating anybody. But because Lutherans stereotypically hate Calvinists so much, they try very hard not to be Calvinists, and then they end up being Calvinists. They try so hard not to be the person that sits in the running car and waits that they end up being the person who sits in the running car and waits. And this is an example of it, because Calvinism, the Calvinists define God primarily by what characteristic? Do you know? Yes. No. His power and his dominion over all creation. And there is a word for the combination of two thing, those two things. Uh, it's a facet of his omnipotence. You're on the right track. Sovereignty. God is defined first and foremost by his sovereignty, his bigness and his power over and his dominion over everything. It's sort of like there's, I think this is from The Life of Brian, which is an extraordinarily irreverent, but also extraordinarily funny movie by the Monty Python troupe. And I, I think it's from Life of Bride. And there's a scene where they go to church and the priest just prays a prayer that is this. Oh God, you are so big and you're so very, very, very big and we're so small. But you're so big and we're so little and you're so great. And that's just the whole prayer is you're so big and we're so little. And that's, you know, comedically, that's sort of what looking at God's sovereignty is wow. you're the one with all the power what am I you're the one with all the dominion what am I now does is God sovereign does he have sovereignty yes absolutely he does but the the issue is do we define God primarily by his sovereignty or is there something maybe that's more important that we ought to be defining as one of his primary characteristics see which what how would we say that Love. Right. So we define God and interact with him and seek to interact with him primarily based on love. And we say that what is the most dominant of all of the characteristics of God? Love. God is love. It, John doesn't write God is sovereign. doesn't mean God isn't sovereign. But when we look at God and we want to, if we want to say that you know, one thing about God, one meaningful thing... You're better off saying that he is love instead of that he is sovereign. And here's the difference in the garden. A God of love does not put down different trees as tests. But a sovereign God may. The God who is sovereign may put the trees down and say, well, I am sovereign, and this is my law, and this is my creation, and well, now you follow my law. The God of love says, here i make this garden, and all of it I give to you, and there's something about these two trees even though I'm telling you right now that it's not good to eat of this tree just yet, there's something about these that is inherently good and good for you because I am a God of love and I care for you. I'm not going to put anything in the garden that's going to hurt you. Morris. It
1: would be interesting to uh, know how this all would have played out if Adam would have said, I told you to lay off the apples.
0: Yeah, well, he did one better because he said, well, you gave me this dumb woman. <laughs> And she did it. Uh, So, what is the point of the tree? That's a good question. I don't know. I can't tell you what the point of the tree is. I can tell you what the... I mean, basically, by its name, I can tell you what the point is. The tree of life does what? Gives life. The tree of knowledge gives? Knowledge. knowledge. Right. But here's... this This is the thing. When the Lord says... Be fruitful and multiply. And I talked about this a little while ago. You have to get out of your head that what he's saying is, hey, this creation's pretty big and you're the only ones here, you know? You guys need to start being husband and wife and fill it up. That's sort of... Okay, all I'm supposed to do is just start having kids. Oh, okay. But it means more than that. Uh, To be fruitful and to be multiply means grow up essentially, grow up in your relationship with me, mature in your relationship with me, and grow up, mature, get bigger and better and stronger and, and more adult-like in your relationship with each other. And part of growing in your relationship with one another is having children. So having children is part of that be fruitful and multiply, but that's not the only thing that it means which is a comfort, especially for couples who are barren, by the way, because what are you supposed to do to comfort a barren couple, a couple that cannot have children, when the command of the Lord doesn't mean anything except for, you better be having kids. Well then, I mean, you have to say, well, what's the point of you getting married? And in fact, that's kind of an issue in the church because when the only purpose of marriage is child rearing and then you can't have children, What does that mean about your marriage? It means your marriage is a sham. And in fact, this is one reason why we don't accept everything that Luther ever said and wrote. Because one thing that Luther said, which the Roman Catholic Church, up to a point, did actually affirm, and I don't know if they still do, I I surely hope not, but it was that if you marry a woman and then find out after you got married, that she was barren, you can divorce her without fault because you married her under false pretenses. Because you married her assuming that she was gonna give you children and she isn't and that, so you can put her away and then get yourself a new wife who is going to give you children. Now what does that say about marriage? If, 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 if the wife, or I mean presumably it works the other way around too, if you marry a man and find out that he is barren, but m- typically barrenness is ascribed, truthfully or untruthfully, to the woman. So uh, what does that say about marriage, you know, if the, if the primary f- goal and telos and uh, finality of marriage is having children, and then you can't have children, and then I can, put, I can put my wife away because she didn't give me children, then what's the point of getting married? Then, then, where is the love that you have for your wife as a person instead of as a womb on legs, (laughs) Larry? Well,
1: as I learned through my family, growing up and others, you know, we had children. We brought them up in the faith. We great ministers, taught them, and where they go. So are they bearing fruit in other congregations? Other faiths. Mm-hmm. Can we
0: look at it that way? That well, sh- I mean, sure. Yeah, that's part of it, too. I mean, that would be on the relational. There's a reason why the Ten Commandments are two-directional, that there's you and God and you and man, because everything is relational. Even the garden is relational. Be fruitful and multiply means grow in your relationship with me and grow in your relationship with one another. And growing and maturing and being fruitful in your relationship with God is, that's one facet of what that includes, is remaining faithful, staying true to the word, bearing fruits of good faith and good works wherever you are, things like that. <clears throat> now, in the garden, what that means is the Lord doesn't say, I'm putting down these trees and, and uh, you better never, ever, 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 ever eat of them. What it means is you're not in a position where you are ready to partake. You're not grown up enough to eat this food. Everything in the garden is good and you can eat of everything else, but these you're not ready to eat yet. Someday you will. And the, f- and the, the fun part of all of that is you do actually. You eat of the, of the tree of life, which is for you what?
1: Yeah. In the-
0: no not, well, no, not death. I mean, you, you quite literally eat of the fruit of, of this tree. You, you actually put something in your mouth and you actually eat it and you actually oh, swallow it. Yes! Yeah, see? This is the whole deal, is that Jesus on the cross becomes, you know, in the prayers even we say, that your cross would become a life-giving tree. That the Garden uh, of Eden is translocated to Calvary. And in fact, there's, there's this really cool uh, early Christian legend about where the wood of the cross comes from. And the legend is that Seth uh, goes back into the garden or goes to the angel barring the way and says, my, my father is dying. My father Adam is dying. Please, can I take some fruit from the garden to alleviate his pain? And the angel says, no, but I will give you seeds from the garden. And he takes these seeds from the, from the tree of life and plants them and it grows into a tree and then the wood of that tree is used and travels through history and then becomes the very wood that Jesus hangs upon. It's a, I don't know if it's true or not, and frankly, I don't care, because it's such a neat... It's not one of those things that you say, well, is this true or is this not true? It's just something that is, and you look at it and appreciate it for what it is. But it's sort of like the idea of Narnia. Once you've read all of Narnia, and then you realize, well, what's the deal with this wardrobe? I mean, this is why you should read it in publication order and not in chronological order, because... The chronological order answers questions that you didn't even know that you had yet, and then you don't have the joy of having the question and then having it answered. Lewis wasn't an idiot either. The publishers are. (laughs) (coughs) Anyway, let me step down from that horse. (laughs) Um, There's a whole thing about, well, what's the deal with this wardrobe? How does the wardrobe work? Why is it that I can go into this wardrobe and go through a portal and enter into another world, travel through fur coats and end up in fur trees. Why? Well, you find out later that the wood that is of that tree, or the wood that the wardrobe is made out of, is from the first tree that grew in the new creation. And that there was a boy whose... Mother was ill and was granted fruit from the tree to feed to his mother, who got better after eating the fruit. It was an apple. She ate it to, to the core. And the boy planted the seeds in his backyard, and they grew into a tree. And he chopped the tree down and then used the wood to build a wardrobe. And the wardrobe brought him into Narnia, which was the land that it was from. I mean, it's just... All of this stuff ties together, this, the, the Christian mythos. We should do a whole Bible class just on the Christian mythos, all the myths and stories of Christendom. Oh, they're great. You've got to know this stuff. You miss so much if you don't know these things. But anyway, so Christ and his flesh become the new tree of life, which gives you life, because now you're ready to receive it. Tree of knowledge, they weren't mature yet enough. All they, ha- they already had some knowledge, which was uh, they knew good, the other thing that you need to get out of your head when it comes to knowledge in, the, in, in Genesis is that one, it either just means head knowledge, things that I know, like trivia, or two, that it just means sex. Um, because you can say that there's the tree of knowledge, which uh, you assume, well, I'm going to get knowledge. Now, you still don't know what knowledge is, though, because it's not just something in your head. And then you have in the next chapter, and Adam knew his wife Eve, and they gave birth. To, and then, you know, you, you turn into a middle school. You go, oh, knowledge in the biblical sense. And you know, like, okay, I know my wife. Ooh, I know my husband. But that's not what it means to to know because there are other there are other passages talking about sex between a husband and a wife where it'll say he went into her or another will it say they they lied together they lay together and she conceived what's the difference between something like that which is just actually describing the act and something where it says I, uh, you the man knew his wife Knowing is an intimate thing. It isn't just about
1: the biblical sense.
0: It's about giving and receiving the fullness of your very being. When a husband knows his wife, it means that there is nothing intellectually, physically, mentally, spiritually, that he does not know about her. It means that he gives the fullness of himself to her. This is who I am, this is what I am, everything that I am, and I give it to you. And all of a sudden, her eyes are opened and she knows her husband. This is who you are. Much, much, in a a much bigger sense than this is what you look like, this is what you think like, these are the things you know, this is what you do. It's who you are. I mean, bearing yourself on your wedding night is more than just, you know your wedding night it's also the bearing of your very soul the bearing of your very being getting married is an is an act of extreme intimacy because you don't give yourself away in that sense to anybody but to your spouse and the idea that then you become one flesh i mean You give yourself to your wife and she receives everything that you are and she gives everything that she is to you and that you receive everything she is. And certainly one part of that is the physical giving and receiving of self. But to limit it only to the physical is to destroy really what it means to know. So when Jesus says, I want you to know me, he doesn't mean I want you to shake hands and go, hi, I'm Pastor Ferguson, hi, I'm Jesus. Oh." okay, I know you, and I'll remember you next time I see you. It's not about that. Why do you think that the relationship is described as a bride and a bridegroom? Because there's this sense of the complete and utter surrendering of the self and the complete and utter reception of the self that is given. Christ gives everything that he is to you. There's nothing about God that is unknown to you because Christ gives himself to you. So The tree of knowledge of good and evil means more than that I intellectually understand what good and evil are. So they're already having an intimate relationship with good because God is good and they live in a garden that is good and God interacts with them. So uh, the knowledge of good and evil gives them something more, a a deeper intimacy with the laws of creation and the, the laws of the mind and of the will and how things work in knowing that here is good, but there is also something that is apart from that. But they're not ready to have what is apart from that yet. And why aren't they? Well, because you see what happens. They're too immature. They're not ready for that. They're still drinking milk. They're not ready for a steak dinner yet. But that eventually they would be. And we, you know, we're, the end times really are that, where you have a deeper more intimate knowledge with good and evil than you do now. And, you know, post-baptism, you actually end up having a deeper and more intimate knowledge of good and evil than you do before baptism. Because it's funny, you partake of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and all of a sudden, you don't know good anymore. Um, You know evil. Why is it Hard to be a Christian after baptism but it's kind of easy to be a Christian before baptism because before your baptism well I don't know the eyes of your heart aren't really opened but it's after baptism when all of a sudden the scales fall from your eyes and a new person emerges and arises and all of a sudden you know good you're being intimately united with good and then that's when you realize oh these are the things that are oh I thought all this stuff was good, but now I'm realizing I didn't actually even know what good was. And now I have to live the rest of my life knowing what good and evil are and being intimately united with them as I am intimately united in a creation with my flesh. And now it's a battle, because I know what is good. And then you say with St. Paul, well, the good stuff that I want to do, I don't do it. And it's only the baptized who can say that, because it's only the baptized who has the eyes opened and has, you know, partaken of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, who can then say, oh boy, life just got a lot more difficult for me. But that's not, even even that isn't the original intent of what that fruit is for. What the original intent is, I can't say, other than that there is an intimate relationship with good and somehow an intimate relationship with evil as well, at least in the sense that you know what it is and appreciate the good all the more. Marla?
1: So is the devil all-knowing also? uh Well then, so when was... He, was he in the garden from
0: minute one, like they were? How
1: did he know that
0: they had been told not to eat from that tree. Sure. God's, so God's word is not private, and it never is, which is why I think it's sort of silly when we in the church talk about the public ministry of the church as opposed to the private ministry of the church, because it's like, everything I do is public. Everything the church does is public. We aren't a private, you know, even, pu- even private confession and absolution is a public thing. There's a big sign on the door that says it's happening, and if you look in, you see it happening. It's not... It's not private. So the word of God is never a private thing. So it's not like when he talks to Adam, he says,
1: All right, friend,
0: this is just going to be between you and me, but I don't want you eating from that. You know, it's not like Satan goes, Oh, what were they talking about? Oh, I bet it was that tree. I bet it. No, he knows because everything that the Lord says is the Lord's word is a public thing, it is a declaration. So it's not. It's not a surprise and it's not an unknown to Satan that these things are here and that the Lord does not want man to be eating of them just yet.
1: So the devil was in the garden
0: at that time? Uh, maybe he was and maybe he wasn't. It's not, it's not a question of overhearing that when Adam and Eve are put in the garden and the Lord talks to them that the devil overhears what the Lord is saying. I don't even mean public in that sense. I mean public in the sense that when the Lord speaks, things are. That I mean, it's that public. It's not overhearing, it's participating in. Anytime that the Lord speaks, the devil knows because the Lord's word does and it is active and it is public. Not, not in the sense that it's publicly proclaimed, which it is, which you could overhear. Like when we had the acapella service and we had the doors open and I hoped that all of our neighbors would hear what was going on here. It's not that kind of public proclamation. It's that the Lord speaks and it is. That's like saying, how do I know that a plant is, is a plant? How do I know that this is real when I'm in the garden? Because the Lord said and it is. So when the Lord says these things are not quite good for man, it isn't that Satan overhears him and goes, because you know, I was in the garden, I was, I was up in a tree like Zacchaeus and I heard you speak that and now I know how to test man. It's, that's how it is. These are the laws of creation that all creatures know, including the heavenly host, because it comes from the word of God. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a public law of creation, which is why the devil can use the laws of creation against God and say, oh, ho, ho, ho,
1: they ate the fruit, now they have to die.
0: You know, using the law and the, the realities of the word of God against him. He uses the word of God in the temptations of Jesus. How does he know the word of God? Does he, did he nab himself a copy of the Bible? You know, did he overhear when the Lord was giving the Ten Commandments on Sinai? You know, it's that question too. It's not a matter of overhearing. It's a, it's a matter of this is reality, and either you're in reality or you don't exist. And if you're in reality, these things are all Known because the Lord is the one who sustains reality. His word is the source of it all. So you can't run away from the word of the Lord. You can say that you don't want to be a part of it, and you can say you don't believe in it, but you can't run away from it. That's the funny thing about atheists. The only reason that an atheist is even alive and breathing is because the will of God has graciously permitted it. And then they run around saying, well, I don't believe in God. And it's like, okay, well, you don't have to believe in him, but your entire existence is rooted in him, which makes it funny that you then turn your back on him in a sense, but so this is all about, you know, when we, when we look at sin then, sin is a, a rejection, and typically a willful rejection of what the will and the word of God is, and we'll, we'll continue m- more about this uh, next week, because we have got to go. Any last minute questions? Okay, very good. See you at the altar. ご視聴ありがとうございました。